Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everybody to today's seminar. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Yuan Guan with us today. Welcome to Griffith. Yuan is director of the International Security Program at Lowy Institute. He obtained his PhD from the ANU in the year of 2003. He has been taking up various positions in academia, the private sector, and the British government over the years before joining Lowy. Uh, his research interests focus on Australian defence policy, maritime disputes in the East and China and South China Seas, nuclear proliferation, the US rebalance to Asia, and defence diplomacy. His um, book, uh, titled Japan's Sea Lane Security, 1940 to 2004, A Matter of Life and Death, which is published by Rutledge, was the first comprehensive English language analysis on the subject. And I can tell that Yun's research has also influential. I've seen a number of uh, interviews by major international media outlets, such as the Wall Street Journal. His topic today is accounting for the Western Pacific's long peace. Will it continue to hold? Uh, which to me is a trillion dollar question as a political economist, given the scale of economists in this region. So uh, let's welcome Yun. So I'm looking back over, let's say, since the post-1945 period with a very basic set of questions, and it really boils down to two. Why has the region's peace held so long as it has? Uh, And secondly, will it continue to endure? And those may seem like very simple, obvious questions, but people in my industry tend to focus on trouble spots, flashpoints, the likelihood of conflict, without stepping back to consider that broader question, which is, why has conflict not happened? Why has the long period since 1980, shall we say, of interstate conflict uh, been sustained uh, in the region, which I will include all of Southeast Asia, as well as Northeast Asia. And so I'm using an expansive version of East Asia when I, uh, when I do so. And when I look around at those who've, uh, who've covered this, um, the one name that obviously leapt to mind was Mutaya Alagapa, who uh, has done some research on this and published, uh, I think, one paper at least, which is uh, available uh, in, under the Carnegie a number of years ago. I also heard him give a lecture in Singapore when I was up there when he was fleshing out his thesis. I don't know whether he's actually gone to the length of producing a a book, as he threatened to do at that point. And I'm not carrying a particular theoretical brief um, for Professor Alagapa, and I don't agree with everything that he says, far from it. But I think, again, it's useful that he does bring some rigour to attempting to account for this uh, declining incidence of interstate conflict. And to be reductive, almost facetiously so, about that period since 1945, the Asian region, in that broad sweep, can be considered conflict-ridden. According to his count, 71 major wars occurred with over 4 million deaths. During that time, uh, he estimates that Asia had five times more conflict and ten times more years of war than the world average. However, that, in a more recent sweep of time, looks very different as almost a game of two halves with a period up until 
1975, and then the last real uh, interstate conflict in the region between Vietnam uh, and Cambodia. I'm not counting any of the smaller brush fire incidents that have happened since, but the Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia, which ended in, in 1989, since then, there really has been no serious interstate conflict. Plenty of tensions, nonetheless, and that's the paradoxical nature, often described in those terms, East Asia's peace is paradoxical Uh, on the one hand there is a good news story of continuing economic growth integration, interdependence but on the other recurrent tensions even hot incidents particularly on the Korean Peninsula that have resulted in, in fatalities and the flip side of that economic good news story of course is increased resources to develop defence, more advanced defence capabilities uh, in the context of lingering suspicions around unresolved questions of history, particularly in Northeast Asia, but also the territorial disputes and tensions that have dominated the headlines in, in the South and East China Seas in recent years. So I think it's the right question to ask. And Alagapa's main arguments, maybe we can just summarise them as follows. Asia has witnessed a substantial reduction in the number of of major and minor interstate wars. And he's quite rosy in his prediction that this is likely to continue for the foreseeable future. What are the factors that he proposes uh, lying behind that? Well, there are three. One, the increasing internal and international legitimacy of the nations and states in the region, particularly those post-colonising states in Southeast Asia, growing international resilience uh, and growing state capacity. Uh, And he gives a lot of emphasis to the importance of deterrence in maintaining those uh, lingering tensions. He also posits that current theories and existing theories of international relations are poor in explaining this paradoxical enduring peace in the region. Given these underlying tensions, realism really ought to explain the descent into conflict and uh, and war. He emphasises that uh, that existing theory downplays the stabilising influence, particularly among the major powers of of nuclear capabilities in in, uh, preserving the peace amongst the major powers. But also economic liberalism, while it explains solid economic performance on one hand, cannot account for the fact that peace has been maintained even while states have been able to divert increasing resources to to their own military build-ups. And while I would reject there is a pattern of a a classical arms race in in the region, it just doesn't fit the binary definition uh, set to that, there's certainly, I think, an unarguable arms dynamic, and one that runs particularly so in, in Northeast Asia. And, of course, China, in terms of the level of spending that it's put, far outspends any of its, uh, its neighbours in that department. Liberal institutionalism also may get some of the explanation right, but this is an institutional poor part of the world, those who focus on ASEAN and the ASEAN way, Alagapa is is also quite sceptical about the role of ASEAN as a transformative institution, arguing that most of the key conflicts were actually resolved before its formulation. 
ASEAN only came after the resolution of, uh, of confrontation uh, between Indonesia and its uh, neighbours to the north, Singapore and, and Malaysia. And that was the last serious interstate schism between ASEAN states that brought them to uh, armed conflict. He puts the emphasis very much on the nation-state as the primary unit, arguing that uh, the conflicts that did occur and that dominated that post-war couple of decades were essentially conflicts around the legitimacy of nations and who controlled uh, national elites rather than systemic level factors. This is where I actually tend to disagree with him um, because I think while the local spark of conflict in Vietnam and Korea can be traced to those very localised concerns, I think the clash with systemic factors in, in the role of the United States and uh, its corresponding ideologically opposed superpower, the, the Soviet Union, did subsume those local conflicts and raise them to the, a major power threshold, often referred to in, in proxy war uh, terms. But he argues that conflicts were initiated very much by local causes, while system-level variables were secondary uh, in the form of external interventions. And his evidence base for that is that uh, the, the end of the Cold War did not resolve those frozen conflicts. That's why we have a continuation of tension across the Taiwan Strait between North and South Korea and to extend the region out into uh, the Indian Ocean between India and Pakistan. So Asia has settled on a, a so-called minimalist peace defined by the absence of war uh, but is still prone to military competition, to conflict and minor armed incidents. But war has become an irrational option, he argues, maintaining the status quo has become the norm. He does, of course, recognise that there is a major caveat here uh, in the question raised by China's rise uh, and the South China Sea dispute, which he does address. But he dismisses the concern and assures that it's highly unlikely that Asia will re-enter a state of major war over such conflicts, uh, saying that the rise of China should be put in perspective. The primary driver of war in the past, uh, in post-1945 Asia, has been the contested legitimacy of nations and states, not the weakness or rise of China. And he emphasises, in looking predictively ahead, that deterrence is likely to remain the primary strategy between states, as a stronger peace is unlikely, given that disputes remain outstanding over these various territorial and historical issues, uh, and that identity continues to be contested and that there is a very strong and irreducible attachment to sovereignty as a common denominator of international relations in the region. And I think the view that he presents is an optimistic one. He urges that to strengthen peace, Asian countries should resolve conflicts through negotiation or arbitration. Here he was writing before the arbitration case in the, in the South China Sea, but interesting that uh, it, it is mentioned, and utilise the existing institutional frameworks in order to avoid escalation. Political leaders, he also urges, should seek to resolve such underlying disputes, but in order to do so would have to engage 
in a more decentralized power environment and be able to adopt flexible definitions of identity and sovereignty and to bolster the international mechanisms of resolving conflict. And that's where I think very much the optimist comes out in Alagapa, one that uh, recent trends actually point to domestic drivers boxing politicians in, into a much more uh, combative narrative, certainly in Northeast Asia. Southeast Asia, we can argue the toss, and in the second part of my talk, I'll also try and break down the differences at the sub-regional level in this very amorphous region. And that's really where I, I came into looking at this, without focusing in detail on what um, uh, Alagapa's theories had been, but really to notice and explore this idea of the contradiction, on the one hand, between the economic untrammeled success of the East Asian tiger economies from Northeast Asia spreading to Southeast Asia being unable at the same time even as they become more integrated and transnational production networks link Southeast Asia very intimately to, uh, to Northeast Asia but nonetheless there has been no resolution of those fundamental sources of distrust, be they on disputed territory or unresolved questions of historical enmity, particularly in Northeast Asia where the definition of states is much more ethnically homogenous uh, and where the balance of economic and military power is over overwhelmingly uh, concentrated in comparison with Southeast Asia. But just to think through the significance of this, Japan's post-war military, although it is, I think, still the fourth largest military spender, is distinguished in never having fired a single shot in anger throughout its existence. The only use of uh, lethal force was by the Japan Coast Guard, ironically, during a, an intrusion by North Korean ships within its exclusive economic zone back in 2001. But the Self-defense forces themselves have never used uh, lethal force e either in peacekeeping or in territorial defense. China, which is of course the focus of most strategic attention and for having pushed assertively, sometimes aggressively, in the South China Sea and East China Sea, it should not be forgotten itself, has not battled any state head-on since the border conflict with Vietnam. And that's going back now to 1979-1980. Now, there were some continuing conventional confrontations that, that went into the 1980s, and then there was the armed incident in the Spratly Islands that resulted in uh, several Vietnamese sailors being killed. But these are very small by comparison with the, the conflagrations of the Korean War or the Vietnam War. On the Korean Peninsula... The armistice has been in place since 1953. Technically, the war has not ended, and episodically it's come under violent strain. But it's never broken, even when we've had incidents such as the sinking of the Chonan, or perhaps most egregiously the shelling of Yongpyong Island across the northern limit line, which resulted not just in military casualties on the southern side, but also civilian deaths for the first time since 1953. But nonetheless, although these incidents have flared up and taken Korea periodically to what seems like the flashpoint of, of a real 
resumption of hot war, and we've seen a lot of this over the last few weeks with the attention given to resumption of ballistic missile testing and uh, the breakneck development in, in North Korea's nuclear capability, but that armistice is held. Southeast Asia has a, a number of on-running internal conflicts. One thinks of southern Thailand, of, of the southern Philippines, the myriad ethnic insurgencies in, uh, in Myanmar, but these are, I think, of a very different nature. They are cross-border and, and boundary disputes which occasionally flash hot. But there has been no significant state-on-state -state conflict since um, Vietnam's withdrawal from Cambodia. And I think it's also significant that in a period where geopolitical tension is increasing in the South China Sea, which pits China on the one hand with its Southeast Asian rival claimants on the other, there has been no real geopolitical freighting of those internal conflicts that I've mentioned in southern Thailand, in Myanmar, or in the southern Philippines, even where we have still one of the world's very few remaining communist insurgencies ongoing. Uh, and that, I think, gives obvious grist to uh, Alagapa's theoretical mill, uh, reinforcing the argument that it's the high cost of war, potentially nuclear, uh, if we look at the United States and China, which has made force obsolete for resolving disputes, especially given the region's very high levels of economic interdependence. So that's the case for, uh, as I said, I'm rather sceptical about several elements of how enduring this paradoxical peace will be. So to try and answer my own question of uh, how much longer will it endure, let's consider the counter-argument. I think the most important strategic question is whether the US-centric security order that's prevailed since 1945 in facing an unprecedented revisionist challenge from a great power, China, which is intent on acquiring capabilities to match that, that ambition. In Northeast Asia, we have very close proximity, the presence of a large forward-deployed US military presence, predominantly in Japan, and in Korea, where about 100,000 forces, give or take, remain in place, uh, including a, a forward-deployed carrier battle group, the whole of the 7th Fleet, and increasingly we've seen US uh, force deployments into Australia, which is a new phenomenon. If that conflict were to, uh, to flash hot, there would obviously be significant potential for it to escalate. And another criticism, well not criticism, but a uh, a weakness that is identified in the region is the lack of crisis management machinery that is in place. The opposite of what uh, has been developed in, in a very uh, thick and institutionalized manner in, in Europe, where the whole corpus of confidence building and crisis management machinery was developed. That's missing, by and large, in Asia. In fact, in Asia we see, if anything, a kind of catch-22 where Countries like China and North Korea tend to focus on trust as a precondition for confidence building, which is the antithesis of the Western approach, which says you need to have the confidence building tools uh, and that will develop the process of confidence, which incrementally will reduce the prospects for violent incidents to, to escalate. Peace is, of course, a good thing, but I'd argue the fact that the Western Pacific writ large has been free of war between states since the late 1970s, 
actually answer a potential ratcheting dynamic to any armed incident. What do I mean by that? Military force once initiated will then command arguably a heightened demonstration premium. If we have large countries with armed forces that have not used military force in any significant sense and suddenly their prestige is called into being and even at the level of the military structure themselves if you are the the armed force commander who is then in the unenviable position of being on the losing side the temptation to escalate will be obvious I think in that scenario there's also a lack of, of knowledge about how to manage the dynamics of conflict once initiated the ability to manage the public messaging aspect of that in a, an era where even in non-democracies popular nationalism has a very powerful and increasing force how can that drumbeat be silenced um, if there is an incident I think is a very significant question and I'd say that in non-democratic societies in particular that temptation for commanders is not just in terms of what the detriment to their career would be, but it makes it may make the difference between whether they are removed or even put to death in the worst case. Another point, having focused on the fact that Japan and China as the, the largest military powers in Northeast Asia have not used military force for several decades, we often forget the United States too has not engaged in a single combat operation of any description throughout the Pacific Command, which runs throughout this map. Pacific Command runs theoretically to a dotted line between India and Pakistan, all the way out to uh, the Western Pacific. Whether it's in the sea or airspace, or whether it's on the continent of Asia, since May of 1975, when basically there was a, an operation in Cambodia just after the conclusion of the Vietnam War, but not since then has the United States engaged in any combat uh, operation, which is an extraordinary fact set against intervention, certainly in the Middle East, but in every other significant continent, even in Europe, in Africa, the United States has. So it, it's an important question we should ask ourselves. Why is that? Just is it forbearance on the, on the part of the United States? Is it the inherent stability of the region? But it is an extraordinary fact that doesn't get enough, I think, attention, particularly given the popular question that people tend to ask, looking at the, the example of Iraq, that the security risk is, is to be entrapped into U.S. entanglements. Well, the empirical record is actually, it suggests there are no entanglements over the last four decades, at least within this immediate region. So that suggests there is something rather powerful at work. And that contrast is sharpened if we consider that the two bloodiest conflicts by far for the United States since 1945 have also been in the region, in Korea and in Vietnam. So what explains this disjuncture in America's regional record? It could be simply that Western Pacific states have shunned military force as an instrument of, of external policy. Notwithstanding all of the recurrent tensions that I've mentioned and the diversion of resources to building up powerful militaries, but do those militaries actually, have we evolved to a point where they are, uh, it's understood 
that the costs of conflict uh, outweigh the risks of, of actually escalating up to that threshold. Is deterrence um, provided by the United States the explanation for that long piece on the other side of the deterrence equation? Here I think the breakdown between the two regions is, is important to emphasize. Um, in Southeast Asia, it's been argued that there's been an, a normative security paradigm which has shifted permanently, relegating armed conflict uh, among ASEAN's members to minor cross-border scrapes, which we saw in the, in the Thailand-Cambodia temple dispute, uh, or to non-lethal maritime tensions, which we've seen occasionally between Malaysia and Indonesia and other maritime uh, Southeast Asian countries. But I would argue it's very difficult to foresee circumstances under which Indonesia would again choose to confront its neighbours militarily. In that sense, I think we have moved into a fundamentally different paradigm. And that's something which, from an Australian perspective, in terms of what the scenarios that defence planners would have to entertain, I simply think it is not credible to imagine that Indonesia, despite its still somewhat scratchy approach uh, and attachment to sovereignty and, and to territoriality, but I think a, a slide back into a Sukarnoist demagoguery is just, is just um, not credible. In Northeast Asia, a close examination of the US record, I think, in North Korea is worth some attention. Because that really, again, I think the empirical record tells us something rather powerful. Consistently in polling, the United States, when ordinary Americans are asked which country uh, do they feel the greatest enmity towards, North Korea comes uh, number one. It's been very consistent in doing so. Interestingly, China is not. It's well up the, uh, the list, normally around 20 or so. So it suggests that ordinary Americans do not see China as a, uh, a straightforward adversary, although the elite debate might vary on that. But North Korea is, norm is, is consistently regarded as number one. So you would expect, on that score alone, given North Korea's track record throughout the 1950s, 1960s, long before it even started to acquire nuclear weapons, we have a pattern of armed provocations, uh, and I'll just list a couple of them. Many of them will be familiar to you already, but in 1968, North Korea apprehended a, a U.S. surveillance vessel that was engaged in electronic spying offshore North Korea's coast, but not within its territorial waters. Uh, it was taken in, its crew was taken off, held hostage for 11 months, and eventually released. It's called the USS Pueblo. It still stays in, in North Korea, and it's displayed as a, a floating museum in, in Pyongyang. It's still, interestingly, a commissioned ship in the, uh, in the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Just the following year after that, another electronic surveillance aircraft, uh, American one, was... Uh, was shot down with a loss of, I think, 20-odd people on board. Uh, and the U.S. went into a very frenzied debate about whether to exact some form of retaliation. President Nixon, we've seen from recently unearthed documents, was of a mind to do so until it was explained to him the risks of retaliating militarily against North Korea carried too high a risk of, of retaliation and a war uh, involving North and South.
And there are other incidents, one of the most famous of which was the so-called axe murder incidents in the, uh, the joint security area in 1976, where again two US military policemen were assailed in very dramatic and bloody circumstances, basically axed to the ground, killed. The United States again went into another vexed debate about whether to retaliate. Uh, and while there was a major demonstration of force, including B-52 bombers that would fly very close to the DMZ from the southern side, there was no armed response to that. More recently, in 2010, North Korea attacked South Korea, U.S. treaty ally, twice, causing military and civilian casualties uh, for the South. The incident that I mentioned earlier, the Chonan Corvette, with the loss of 46 South Korean sailors, probably to a, a North Korean torpedo, and then the much more egregious and openly aggressive act of shelling Yongpyong Island where civilians were killed. Not only did the United States not react, but it also put pressure on its ally in Seoul not to retaliate. So what does that tell us? It, it tells us, I think, in a very important sense, that deterrence is a two-way street. Conflict has not occurred in East Asia, not simply because the US was always in a hegemonic position, but because the US has also been deterred, deterred by uh, North Korea even before it had the inkling of a nuclear capability at the high point of US uh, hegemony one could argue in the late 1960s but even closer to the end point of the Cold War US so-called hegemonic moment and what happened soon after that hegemonic moment well there was a nuclear crisis on the Korean Peninsula uh, in which President Clinton again came very close to a decision to use force. The plans were drawn up to quite an advanced degree. At that point, the uh, red line that was worried about was the reprocessing of, of plutonium from an experimental reactor at Yongbyon. But in the end, there was a negotiated solution to that in the form of the so-called agreed framework, uh, and the crisis yet again um, ebbed. But I would argue if North Korea transposed any other region in the world, it would not have had that record of being able to raise the, the temperature, including armed provocations and multiple military casualties inflicted on the United States without ever having once suffered military retaliation. And here's where I think there's an, an important general point to underline, that it's not simply North Korea's ability to rain down destruction on Seoul, which is the restraining factor. It's not simply the possession of a inchoate nuclear missile deterrent, although I think that will be a, an increasing factor that the United States is and will have to take into account. But it's where it is, and again, the basic facts of geography. North Korea sits on China's border, and North Korea's strategic genius relies on using that ability to sit within China's strategic shadow, often at cross-purposes with China's own strategic interests. But because it sits uh, in such a vital area, and the Korean War offers a salient example where China was prepared to intervene against the United States' armed intervention on its borders, that, I think, still exerts an important deterrent influence on U.S. options. And I would argue that's one factor why we are unlikely to see, despite the 
reports now that the US is considering preemptive strikes in North Korea for again that same basic geopolitical fact of life that if North Korea was in the middle of South America or in Africa that same strategic shadow would not apply and that brings us to China because of course we have to come back to China and it is China's increasing military potential and deterrent capability which casts the greatest counter deterrent to the United States of all often referred to in, in rather military acronym term of A2AD but what that really essentially is saying is that uh, anti-access area denial China's ability to impose costs on any military intervention close to its coastline makes it less and less credible for the United States to be able to intervene in a Taiwan scenario and even in 1996 when there was a major uh, crisis the United States trod very carefully in where it actually placed its aircraft carriers because even then China's ability to to threaten them was significant uh, and 20 years uh, later that capability is now exponentially greater so deterrence is a two-way street that's something that um, I think Alagapa doesn't fully develop but his emphasis on deterrence I think is is a significant part of the uh, the explanation why that why the peace is held in this region in a way that it has not elsewhere given that disjuncture of having fought on the Asian continent twice in Korea to a draw and Vietnam to a defeat the United States of course would tread very very carefully about using force on the Asian continent but I would argue that forbearance is now progressively being extended to the sea and airspace around China's periphery. So what at the rear-looking part of this lecture, let's consider the current dynamics and why I'm less optimistic than Alagapra that this peace will endure. I think that his focus on the importance of the nation-state and resilience of post-colonizing states holds true in Southeast Asia and it's why we haven't seen proxy conflicts begin to develop uh, even though we have an increase in geopolitical tensions between the US and China but what it doesn't account for is a significant change in the systemic balance and that is again where the South China Sea I think is the, the obvious and perhaps the ultimate test of whether this peace will hold because they're very clearly that one caveat which Alagapa himself identified holds out the potential not just for uh, China and its maritime neighbours to become in, in close proximity with uh, increasing incidents between paramilitary law enforcement armed vessels but also naval on naval encounters and it's there that the uncertainty has now been injected in the form of the new administration's <coughs> policies which clearly there is much less emphasis on the importance of consistency in terms of signalling the attachment to reassurance to allies it has been surprising the level at, at which senior Trump administration officials including the defence secretary and maybe less successfully the secretary of state but nonetheless, they have gone to um, Korea very early on. They've visited Japan and given messages of reassurance. 
But the attachment of the president himself to the framework of uh, alliance system in Asia is, I think, much more in question. Uh, and this was a point made at um, the Lowy Institute just last night by our visiting fellow Tom Wright, who uh, has tracked the, uh, the foreign policy inclinations of, of uh, Donald Trump more closely and for longer than I think any other analyst currently active. And I think it's that that uh, gives me the greatest cause for alarm and pessimism that it will not be in the form of US adventurism or preemption in North Korea that the peace is broken. I think the greater risk is that the United States will be perceived as no longer attached to defending these uh, long-standing shibboleths of the alliance framework and the treaty obligation to defend Korea, Japan and Australia. Maybe for now that message of reassurance is held, but whether it will continue to hold throughout the, the four years, potentially eight years of a Trump presidency, I think is a much uh, more troubling prospect and, and, uh, and question, especially you know, given Mr. Trump's very clear consistency on this, that one thing he does not feel any ideological commitment to is the idea of alliances. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He sees alliances as, as having led to the United States being taken advantage of by its allies and, uh, and trading partners. Of course, there is no perfect crystal ball in this, and I think it's not to be dismissed that the region has had an extraordinary, unbroken four decades without major interstate conflict, especially if we are to read across you know, to the disaster of the Middle East in the last uh, two decades. That does suggest a real success story uh, in the ability to, to at least divert energies towards economic development that otherwise could have gone into a full-scale military build-up. And I don't think that what has happened justifies the definition of an arms race, as I've said. Uh, in fact, the distinguishing feature of China's military build-up until now has been that it hasn't really broken sweat. China's capacity to uh, divert resources to, uh, to the military are far greater than they currently are. In fact, what we've seen just in the last couple of weeks is an indication that military defence spending has been reduced to 7% growth. It's still growing, of course, and that compound growth is very significant indeed. But uh, it, is, it does show, nonetheless, in policymakers' mind, in China's mind, a precedent, the preeminence of economic growth, that China will only invest resources to the extent that it believes they are affordable. But nevertheless, I, I think the, the other point about stability of, between major powers, uh, I think Alagapa is also right to flag the importance of nuclear deterrence. That, I think, does cast such a great shadow over conflict scenarios between the United States and China that um, it's very difficult to see how that, that conflict would be entered into as anything other than a gross miscalculation of uh, perceptions on either side. But it's that perception that now is much more fragile than it was at any other point, I think, in the last few decades, because you have a, a U.S. administration which is consciously pulling back from the leadership of the international liberal order, and that vacuum is yet to be filled. And we've seen that in how... Even countries like Australia, I think, are, are looking around, are not knowing how to react. And in that vacuum, 
the potential for a spoiler like North Korea to miscalculate its level of freedom of maneuver, overcalculating that five decades in which the United States has never once used military force against it gives it carte blanche. And my final thought, again, to introduce another important part of, of crisis um, international relations theory, but the concept of, of the stability-instability paradox here, I think, applies. As North Korea moves closer towards having a fully-fledged nuclear uh, deterrent, well, that might stabilize the nuclear part of the equation, but the difficult part of that is, does that then embolden North Korea to escalate below that threshold, safe in the knowledge that the United States, Japan, South Korea are unlikely to take the chance of a full-scale retaliation. And on that troubling note, I'll conclude, but look forward to your, uh, your questions and your comments. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.